0: Nation, I am James Kent, and from 1969, this is the Guess Who with Undone.
1: She's come undone, she didn't know what she was headed for, and when I found what she was headed for, it was too late, she's come undone. Found the mountain that was far too high. And when she found out she couldn't fly, it was too late. It's too late. She's gone too far. She's lost the sun. She's come undone She wanted truth, but all she got was lies. Came the time.
0: A classic song for the Guess Who. Uh, Probably one of the greatest examples of the modern rock genre of that era of the late 60s, where rock was a little bit groovy, a little bit psychedelic, a little bit spooky. Uh, One of my favorite eras of music, modern rock. And I chose that track for a reason, uh, according to the Wikipedia entry for this song. It was written by Guess Who frontman Randy Bachman after hearing Bob Dylan's ballad in Plain D, which included the phrase, she was easily undone. Bachman's song tells the story of a girl he had seen at a party who, after dropping acid, slipped into a coma. Now, I don't know if that actually happened. I don't know if anybody actually slipped into a coma from taking acid but it is an interesting story. Uh, I assume that maybe uh, the woman just passed out from taking too much, had an overdose, but who knows? Maybe she did actually slip into a coma. There's not really a whole lot of information on what happened to this woman who was the inspiration for what is probably the Guess Who's most famous song and one of the most famous songs of that era. If you've been listening up to now, this is episode 7 in our limited 10-part series at Dose Nation. I'm going to wander around a little bit on this episode and come back to 1969 and some bad acid trips a little bit later. But first I wanted to kind of circle back and recap some of the larger themes that I've been talking about in these episodes. And perhaps the overarching theme... That collects the themes altogether is the idea that perhaps psychedelics are somehow completely incompatible with modern culture. That is to say, that modern culture has no place for psychedelic exploration, and all attempts to fit or wedge psychedelic exploration into the narrative of modern culture are met with backlash. Failure, tragedy, embarrassment, and sometimes personal destruction. And I'll revisit this idea over and over again in this episode and in future episodes to come. And part of this idea comes from my feeling that the psychedelic era is over. It happened in the 60s. It happened in the 60s and maybe uh, bleeding over into the early 70s and basically ended with prohibition and, you know, grisly stories in the news, like what happened with Charles Manson and the Manson family that made acid and psychedelics into a demon of modern society as opposed to a savior of modern society as many in the psychedelic communities would would claim that it is and one of the notions of this psychedelics as savior movement is that a post psychedelic world that is a world where everybody has been turned on to psychedelics and psychedelics have been fully integrated into modern society a post psychedelic world is somehow more fabulous and more exciting and more peace-loving, or more grounded and sustainable than a non-psychedelic culture. And those are all very lofty thoughts, lofty ideas, and and forwarded by people who only have the best intentions of making the world a better place. But here we are, in 2017, living in a post-psychedelic world, and psychedelics are still considered to be dangerous to society. People in general in the mainstream society have not bought into the idea that psychedelics are going to save the world. If psychedelics were going to save the world, maybe we would have seen some evidence of that 50 years on from when they were first introduced to the public. But we don't see evidence of that. We see the world basically carrying on as usual, if not spiraling further out of control, the farther we go. And beyond that, mainstream society, the government, uh, legislators, uh, from, from local police and sheriff's departments all the way up to state legislators uh, and senators and the federal government, they all pretty much agree 100% that psychedelics should be illegal and not a part of mainstream society. So there is a strong backlash there against the notion that psychedelics are somehow going to save the world or change society for the better. Not only you know, legally and morally there's a backlash, but the evidence would suggest that this idea that psychedelics are somehow going to save the world or make the world a better place is, is lacking. The evidence for this suggestion just doesn't exist. You can't point to the world and say, see, it's a better place because all of these different people tuned in and dropped out. You know, there are linchpins in history, in modern history, where you can say, okay, well, uh, post-Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, race relations got better. Which is kind of true. It was a, it was a turning point in race relations, uh, that speech. And you can say, living in a post-Martin Luther King world, we can see that some things have gotten better it's not quite as easy with psychedelics you can't point to timothy leary or terrence mckenna or anything that maps has done and go see now we've fixed something it's better psychedelics have made the world a better place you just can't make that statement with any sort of factual evidence you can you can kind of talk around it you can say ambiguously that you know trends of violence around the world are going down, people are becoming more educated, there's less poverty in the world, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Those are all just kind of global trend lines of modernity. I don't know if psychedelics had anything to do with any of those. Although people will argue that you know the environmental movement, the sustainability movement, the peace movement, the anti-war movement all came out of psychedelic culture. And that, that may be true. There may be some truth in that. But the, the, the benefits of that awakening are kind of hard to quantify. From a social perspective. So these are the themes, the, the underlying themes. Uh, are psychedelics incompatible with modern culture? Are we living in a post-psychedelic world? And what did prohibition do to the psychedelic movement in general? Beyond delegitimizing the act of taking psychedelics, was prohibition a turning point in psychedelic culture that that militarized the culture, or that politicized the culture and and made it into what it is today, which appears to me, as I will repeat over and over again in these episodes, it appears to me to be a movement focused solely on legitimizing the psychedelic experience in modern culture, the legitimization movement. And what does the legitimization movement do to the culture? to the fringe subculture, to the party subculture, to the entire fabric of the psychedelic community. What does that movement do? What do people have to believe? What do they have to say about psychedelics to fit into the movement and show everybody that they're down with legitimization? That's really what it comes to, is that if you want to be part of the psychedelic culture, you need to buy into the idea, this notion that, Psychedelics need to be a legitimate part of mainstream society. That seems to be job number one. That's everybody's highest priority from, from a medical perspective, a religious perspective, a legal perspective, um, a personal freedom perspective. From every every perspective, you need to deny that psychedelics are somehow dangerous or antithetical to to modern notions of progress. And you need to get down with the idea that psychedelics are... A panacea and a savior for everything everything that's wrong with the world we can fix with lsd and mdma and mushrooms and and their kin and that's really kind of where the, the 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 germ of these episodes came from me wanting to articulate what i've seen and how i feel about that now and where i feel things have kind of gone wrong and people have turned a blind eye to things that don't fall into that category of legitimization. Not only will they turn a blind eye to news or reports that seem to go against the legitimization movement, they will become angry and push back and fight that idea. And I talk about psychedelic culture like it's a monolithic thing, but it's not. It's very loose and disorganized and spread out across many different factions around the world. Um, what makes a psychedelic culture? I discussed this a little bit in psychedelic information theory. At what point is a culture a psychedelic culture? Is psychedelic culture just party and festival people? Is it all of the U.S. and Canada, Australia, the U.K., the Netherlands, Ibiza, Goa, and everywhere consumer-grade psychedelic substances are available? Or is it the indigenous and tribal cultures where hallucinogens and sacred medicines Play a large role in their cultural mythology? Is it uh, the Harvard psychology group with their radical application theories like Timothy Leary, etc.? Is it MAPS with their lobbying and policy approach? Is it the Hefter group with their careful medical interventionist approach? Well, let's just say you include all of those groups and you get them all in a room and you ask them, Should psychedelics be integrated into mainstream culture, or are they antithetical to modern society? And you will get probably a 100% approval, agreement, that psychedelics definitely need to be integrated into mainstream culture. And it's not because, well this is just my assumption here, the reason people say that is not because they, they genuinely believe that psychedelics will somehow change or save the world although maybe deep down they they really believe that. They say that because they want their own experiences with psychedelics to become legitimized. And this is the root of the problem with the community, is people on psychedelics have very strong and profound experiences that may change their lives, that may change their minds, that may change who they are as people profound experiences, experiences that can't really even be related in words or art or song or poetry, so far beyond the ability to communicate and share with other people the profoundness of the psychedelic experience. And then in the aftermath of that experience, people are then told, oh, well, it's not a real experience. It's just a drug experience It's not a legitimate experience and therefore we do not want to integrate your experiences into modern society. You keep them to yourself. They're shameful. They're actually illegal. They may be subversive. So we don't want to hear about your psychedelic story. We want you to keep it quiet and keep it closed in the community where everybody can have kind of the same idea about what that experience means. Keep it closed in the community. Keep it locked behind closed doors. Don't talk about it in mainstream society. Now I think... That part of the problem with psychedelic culture is the main thing driving the legitimization movement. It's not the fact that we're angry that psychedelics were made illegal or we're angry that people are in jail. Those, those things are true. People are angry that, that, that psychedelics are illegal and that people go to jail for making and selling and distributing psychedelics. That's, that's a horrible truth that people need to reckon with in the community. But more than that, it's this selfish idea of someone trying to criminalize your experience. We're going to criminalize this amazing experience you had. Maybe it was a Gnostic experience. Maybe it was a religious experience. Maybe it was a terrifying experience. Maybe it was a near-death experience. Maybe it was a hilarious experience. Maybe it was all of these things. But it doesn't matter what kind of an experience it was, if it's criminal and delegitimized, because even if it was the greatest experience in the world, you can't share that with somebody who thinks that psychedelics are an illegitimate form of mental expression. It's, it's frustrating. And the people who are most frustrated by this are the ones that are pushing the hardest for the legitimization because they want to be able to stand up and say, I had a great experience on acid or I had an experience on mushrooms that changed me and they want the rest of the world to applaud as if (laughs) they are a hero of some kind for drugging themselves into a deranged state and coming back a slightly different person they want to be seen as a spiritual warrior or a hero not a criminal they don't want to feel like they're a criminal because they're exploring some, some spiritual curiosity. And I, I fully understand that. I mean, I've, I've been in the movement for a long time. I, I, I fully understand that feeling, which is sort of why I got involved in media and publishing, to share people's stories and share the insights in a public forum where people could think, oh yeah, this is a legitimate experience. This is a place where I can, I can share my experience and read about other people's experience and find something familiar that relates to me as opposed to being met by this closed door of criminality and prohibition and delegitimization at every turn. And another underlying theme that I'm exploring and uh, probably the idea that led me most directly into these podcasts is the question, is there a psychedelic agenda? And a lot of these notes that I have here for these podcasts were originally collected because I was going to write a book called The Psychedelic Agenda. But again, I I don't really... (laughs) I don't really have the follow-through to write that book. I don't know if there's a market for it. I don't know who would buy it. Uh, it there's just a very small market. Uh, I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time writing a book that was just um, talking negative about the community. It was It's easier for me to just sit down, read through these notes, and talk. These uh, episodes haven't come together as quickly as I thought. It takes me a while to get through these episodes uh, and collect all the notes and everything that I want to say. And I kind of get worried that I'm, I'm missing something, I'm missing a perspective, or I'm missing an idea that, that maybe was, was part of the germ or part of the reason for me to get in this. But the idea of a psychedelic agenda, the social and cultural agenda being pushed by the psychedelic community, it's more than just enjoy your drug experience, you know, have a good time, um, maybe do it with friends. You know, that's, that's not the agenda. To me, that was always the agenda. You know, you, you, you have some, some drugs that will alter your mind. Hopefully, they'll make you feel better. They'll make you feel good. The, they'll make you feel fun. They'll make you feel silly. And if, if you have a good time, then you have achieved your goal. But now, in the face of legitimization, there is a new goal. The goal isn't just explore yourself, have a good time, maybe learn something new. It's now radical social change, radical everything. You've got a new age spiritual movement, a neoliberal movement, a green movement, an anti-war movement, all of these dropout movements, um, movements towards intentional communities, movements towards anti-commerce and anti-capitalism and anti-globalism. And all of these kind of have have spun out of this original psychedelic experimentation movement which was all about you know young people having a good time and maybe looking to have sex right that's always a big factor in what's going on in psychedelic culture there's a lot of young people mixing around looking for somebody to hook up with and drugs are just part of that sensual milieu where you go looking for a mate or someone to share a deep personal experience with. But now it's changed, and I've had some time to dwell on what it is. And this psychedelic agenda all focuses around a kind of savior syndrome, or maybe it's a victim and martyr syndrome. And I'm still kind of honing this idea and focusing in on it, because it is a little bit amorphous, but I feel like I'm getting close to something here because a large percentage of psychedelic ideology centers around this idea that the world, the society that we live in, humans, are essentially broken and we are now lost and spun out of control and somehow psychedelics are going to fix whatever's broken about the world. And this thinking goes all the way from the cellular world the promise of fixing broken cells and fighting cancer and treating disease with say ayahuasca therapy oh there's something broken in you well psychedelics can fix that we'll just heal you with some psychedelic therapy and it it may may relate to somebody's broken psyche you know i i'm suffering from depression or anxiety or i have these conditions related to you know being a survivor of abuse Well, okay, we're going to fix that. We're just going to bring in some psychedelics and and go in there and tinker with your brain and we're going to fix it. And then you go all the way to, well, geez, the world is spiraling out of control. There's all this pollution and global warming and war. Well, all we need to do is just introduce psychedelics and we can fix that. And the world will become a happy place where everyone shares in this sustainable group love this big this big planetary group hug that we're all going to experience once we all tune in. <laughs> and then you get to the gr- most grandiose delusion of all is that there's some sort of galactic disorder going on, that we're all part of some galactic experience, this, some galactic conspiracy that involves uh, aliens and mushroom spores and the whole human experiment from beginning to end is really a, a psychedelic experiment uh, of, of trying to alleviate galactic suffering and create this galactic realignment where the Earth will be ushered into this galactic citizenship. And because we are all self-aware and self-actualized with psychedelics, we will have uh, the, the pureness of mind to join uh, our alien brethren among the stars. So there's this myth, there's this very potent myth in the psychedelic agenda of placing a a psycho-spiritual blanket or a healing balm over the suffering of the self or the suffering of the world or the suffering of the galaxy or the suffering of the universe that is going to fix things and make things better. And this is all kind of marketing. There's nothing in the psychedelic experience which actually produces any of this stuff, any of this, this, this healing or relief of suffering or, you know, changing of the world. It's just a drug experience that, that changes your mind for a few hours and then, and then dumps you back into your body. And all of this stuff about, you know, healing the psycho-spiritual disorder of the planet or the self, it's all marketing that comes in after the fact. To, to legitimize psychedelics as part of the agenda and this marketing has a very very loose relationship with the truth uh, which is a nice way of saying that there it's lies or it's not entirely true <laughs> because if you look at the actuality of what has actually been accomplished in the psychedelic movement you can't really boast any huge accomplishments I'm not saying that, that the psychedelic community has achieved nothing. I'm just saying it hasn't achieved anything close to what it actually claims it can ac- accomplish. And I think this, this savior idea, the savior syndrome, uh, this victim and martyr syndrome, it kind of goes back to the idea of original sin and Christian mythology. But it is kind of a a religious movement where they're promising something like everlasting life or peace on earth through the communion with the sacrament. And what you actually get is, is, is far different than what is promised. And that's one of my major problems, my major concerns with the psychedelic movement as a whole is that it, it, it's gotten to the point where it's promising way more than it can deliver, and this has been going on for since people started taking psychedelics, I guess. But it's just gotten worse since prohibition because in the face of backlash, in the face of being told that your experience is not legitimate, you need to up the game. You need to up the game and say, no, it's not just about me. It's not just about me and me wanting to have this, this fun and exciting time on this, on this weird and unusual drug. It's not about me. It's about saving the world. And if you can't see that, you're an idiot. And this is the kind of, the the, the kind of literal argumentation that I, I hear from people in the psychedelic community. If you can't see that this is about saving the world, then you're part of the problem. And if we want to be super generous, and I'm going to be super generous here, and go back to the '60s and look at what the the hippie culture and the anti-war movement centered around uh, the psychedelic experimentation scene actually accomplished well they introduced a lot of ideas into culture they were able to introduce a lot of strong ideas that push forward the agendas of civil rights human rights equal rights for women the anti-war movement the green and environmental movements the vegetarian and vegan movements the sustainability movement and i will agree that all of these are very worthy and important causes that need to be taken very seriously and modern policy, and politics, and culture. And the psychedelic community, I think, is partly responsible for amplifying these movements. I don't know if they actually started any of these movements, but they accepted and amplified these movements within the psychedelic community and made them causes worth fighting for. But all of these movements, if you look closely at them, they start with identifying a victim or a problem, whether it's a human or an animal or the environment that, that's being trodden on, and seeking to find a fix for it. And th- these are all very, you know, like I said, these are, these are just causes, but they come from a sense of savior syndrome. And this savior syndrome, I think, is one of the main things that psychedelics produce in people more than you know freeing your mind or you know healing the soul or any of the other kind of truisms that go along with psychedelic experimentation i think this savior syndrome comes out of a kind of mania or a megalomania that causes a person post psychedelic trip to feel empowered they feel empowered by the mania the the post-psychedelic mania that that allows them to see the world in a new way and make makes them feel their personal power in a new way so that they can quote self-actualize and become active and create a social movement and become a crusader and an activist for change hopefully to make things better and that that man—I felt that mania, and I felt I felt those ideals. I felt I felt that. God, if I can just transfer this power that I'm feeling in myself now, to the rest of the world, just think of what can be accomplished. And although it seems like a very altruistic movement and a very altruistic idea, it's also very selfish, narcissistic, and self-centered to believe that you can through the power of your activism or self-actualization change the world and make it better that's really kind of uh, you know delusional at its core and people are told this over and over especially in america in the united states they're told this from a very young age that a single per- single dedicated person devoted to a cause can make an amazing amount of change and that's true that is true but you need to be careful about the cause that you dedicate yourself to because it could be the right cause, it could be the wrong cause, and you need to know why you're doing it. Are you doing it for you because you want to elevate yourself to the level of some kind of savior so that you can feel righteous and lord your morality over other people, which is something I see very often in the psychedelic community, or is it because you truly care and you want the world to be a better place for everyone? Now, evidence would tell me that it's the former. It's because people are selfish and narcissistic, and that everybody wants to be a hero. And this is extremely finely tuned in the psychedelic community. We're victims, we're martyrs, we're criminalized for wanting to to free our minds. And so we're now fighting back to make the world a better place. We're not vindictive, we're not criminals. We're not, we're not the bad guys in this scenario. We're the heroes, and we're going to prove it by activating ourselves and making the world a better place and alleviating other people's suffering. We're going to heal the planet. We're going to ease the psycho-spiritual suffering by, by trance-dancing all night at a rave into and, and delirious states. And I think people lose sight of that in the psychedelic community. They think, oh, I found an agenda... My agenda has, has focused on a victim and now I have a, a savior strategy that I'm going to use to, to save this victim and everything else be damned. That's now my morality. And I think that is essentially dangerous. I think it's kind of dangerous to, 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 to give people the power to create their own savior agendas. Because I think it's a little bit delusional. And when I run into people who have these specific savior syndromes, I find them to be not the most reliable people in the world, maybe not the most rational people in the world. And it may be directly related to the amount of psychedelics that they've done. The more megalomaniacal you become from taking a bunch of mushrooms or a bunch of acid, the more into the savior syndrome you get until you've kind of defied logic. And you believe that by, you know, meditating in a dark room on a high dose of mushrooms, you're somehow altering the fabric of human culture and, and making it a, a better place for everyone. And you start building opinions and policies and platforms that are antithetical to the ideas of progress and moving society forward, which is why I kind of think and feel that psychedelics are incompatible with modern culture because often people who take psychedelics adopt a self-driven agenda that goes against the ideas of modern culture for better or worse. And I'm not saying modern civilization and modern culture is all hunky-dory and fine and good. Modern culture and modern civilization is what it is, and it's a force that is going to keep moving and doing what it does, no matter what your political platform and ideology is. It is, just, it is, a, it is a thing unto itself that's going to keep moving. And when you take psychedelics and you say, hey, modern culture, what's up with you? You're leaving people by the wayside, and you're causing suffering here and there, and these people's rights are being infringed. I'm going to step up and stop you. I'm going to tell you what's what, and I'm going to fix this. So that's that's where I see the incompatibility. People don't take psychedelics and go, yeah, I'm down with the cause of modern civilization. Modern civilization is on the right track. Everybody's going to live forever, and we're going to go to space. <laughs> And the future is going to be awesome. No, no, you very, very rarely hear that. What you hear is, oh, oh, man, we are just on the worst course possible. And the only thing left in our future is doom and destruction and chaos. Unless we get down with the anti-materialization movement, the anti-consumer movement that is going to save the world. And no matter, you know, what, what good place, what, what good altruistic place these ideas come from, these ideas of pushing back against modern civilization comes from, they are kind of delusional. And this fits in with my, you know, my emergent atheist ideology that all spirituality is delusion to some extent. The, the, the belief that you can just, you know, put your hands together and pray... And somehow that's going to make things better. Um, maybe it might make things better because in that, you know, that minute or two that you're on your knees praying, you're not out killing or raping anybody. Of course, that is a, you know, a direct cause of prayer. As I, as I said in a previous episode, uh, Albert Hoffman famously claimed that he could see LSD's benefits, especially when combined with meditation. Which made me think, yeah, okay, he, he's down with LSD as long as you sit still and silent and don't say or do anything. Uh, because as long as you're still and silent and not saying or doing anything, then you're, you can't be a danger to yourself or others. So it's like this very, uh, sorry, I don't know, a patronizing idea of, yeah, go sit down and meditate. And that's, that's the way that we're going to make things better because you're going to be out of the picture during the time that you're meditating and we won't have to worry about you for a little while. (laughs) So yes. uh, Is all spirituality a delusion? Probably. Is all gnosis a form of psychosis? Probably. And finally, what do psychedelics actually do to people and to culture versus what they are promised to do in their marketing. Is there any overlap? Is there any overlap between what, what is promised in the psychedelic marketing and what actually happens in a psychedelic trip or in a post-psychedelic trip or in a society inundated with psychedelics? What is the actuality as opposed to the promise? And are all of these people walking around spouting these psychedelic moralities really just completely delusional and blind to what is really going on. One of the topics I wanted to discuss on this episode and revisit in the uh, final episodes I have remaining here is what I call the problem with ideas. And this is something that I don't ever see discussed anywhere, not in psychedelic literature, not in any literature. And one of the things that people say about psychedelics, one of the positive things about psychedelics is that they enhance creativity and through enhancing creativity they allow the user to have all sorts of new ideas and new conceptions uh, that they can integrate into their life and the imagination is talked about like it's this kind of infinite resource that can constantly deliver new pearls new nuggets new gems of information to to the subject if they're just willing to experiment with the substance and open their minds and let the, the thoughts just th- flow through them. And there is a, a lot of truth to this. Psychedelics will flood your brain with all sorts of new thoughts and new ideas and new combinations of ideas that maybe you had never considered before that just hit you one after the other in these just epiphany after epiphany after epiphany all of these ideas coming at you but this is what creates the problem because in an avalanche or a waterfall of ideas that may come to you in a psychedelic trip the vast majority of those ideas are going to be bad ideas and not just dangerous ideas like I think I can fly maybe I'll test that off this balcony that's obviously a bad idea. But what about ideas that come to you that are just plain wrong? In hindsight, they're just plain wrong. But in the moment of the idea, it feels like you've stumbled on to something huge, something mind-blowing, earth-shattering, that is the, the most brilliant idea that ever came into being. The problem then becomes, how do you sort through the bad ideas and the good ideas and throw the bad ones out so that they don't muddy or cloud your thinking or lead you down some delusional path, chasing an idea that was that was bad from inception. And the modern psychedelic movement is nothing if not a long trail of bad ideas followed by more bad ideas offered by people who had very little understanding of what they were talking about, which led to all sorts of disinformation trickling through the community, disinformation which continues to this day and, and, and you know, even grows in power over the years. This is a testament to the power of bad ideas, even bad ideas can take hold in a community that's fascinated with new ideas, fascinated with novelty. We uh, we don't want the boring old ideas. We, we're, we are no longer satisfied with mundane culture. We want the new, exciting ideas. We want the fascinating ideas. We want the way-out-there ideas that make people go, whoa, you know, ideas that involve uh, aliens and DNA hacking and... Uh, invisible fields controlling everything that's going on and spirit dimensions those are the those are the ideas that stick the the crazy fantastical ideas um, that are that are outside of the realm of normal daily experience those bad ideas hang around in the culture and they cause problems in the culture and there's a long list of bad ideas that don't seem like they're ever going to go away. So the problem with ideas in the psychedelic community is that there are too many of them. There are too many ideas. And people in the psychedelic community become enamored with their own ideas. They become enamored with the concept, the notion that they may have thought of something that nobody else before has thought of. And therefore, by having this new idea, they are somehow a genius. They somehow made a, a breakthrough or a discovery that has eluded everybody else that has come before them. And in order to to take that mania, that megalomania, that 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 belief that I have discovered something in the psychedelic trip that nobody else knows, that idea is very potent. It's a very potent idea. And it leads to a lot of uh, kind of messianic syndromes, where people who have had these experiences, these very powerful experiences, where they're, where they're touched with a piece of wisdom or a piece of insight, suddenly feel like they know exactly what's going on and they have all the answers, and they are then driven to go out and convince everybody else that that they are right and it becomes like a prophet syndrome or uh, a, a messiah syndrome where the person not only gets frustrated that nobody's listening to their ideas, they get very angry when people push back on them and say, well, that idea is outrageous. It's a bad idea. They can't come to believe that it's a bad idea if it came to them in a psychedelic trip with all of this this fanfare and fireworks that goes along with with psychedelic epiphanies if this idea was revealed to you in a psychedelic trip where you you see the fabric of the universe unfolding and suddenly a piece of wisdom appears in your mind it's very hard to have somebody else tell you that that's a bad idea to have somebody else convince you that you have been fooled. You have fooled yourself into believing something that is absurd. And I can talk about some of these bad theories. There's lots of them. I mean, I'm sure you're probably familiar with many of them. Maybe you're still hanging on to the edges of some of these ideas. There's uh, famously Tim Leary's Eighth Circuit model, where he proposes that there might be hidden circuits in the brain that are only activated by psychedelics, and that when these hidden circuits are activated, you get access to all of this information that is not normally available to you. And Leary goes very deep into the Eighth Circuit model. It wasn't just a bad idea. It was a bad idea with with tons of details. He spent a lot of time fleshing out this model because he really believed in that model and of course at the time that leary was making this model the only conception for the mind that he had was this kind of electrical circuit diagram because that was the going technology of the time so he thought of the brain in terms of electrical circuits that could be switched on and off Um, bad idea spent a lot of time on it spent a lot of his career on it Um, there are there's the shamanic spirit model which you know, all traditional shaman around the world adhere to, that the psychedelic opens you up to a hidden spirit space uh, and allows you to have contact with these entities that pass information back and forth to you. And that has gotten adopted by by Western explorers as well. And that line is 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 passed down to each new generation of psychedelic explorers that the spirit model is actually the correct model and then there are esoteric theories like terence mckenna's terence and dennis mckenna's theory of hypercarbulation where something in the electronic spin resonance of cells in the brain causes this holographic presentation of information across the outer layers of the neocortex a very bizarre uh idea also a bad idea um, there's this idea, I think it was uh, Jeremy Narby who posited that uh, oh, maybe the psychedelic hallucinations come from biophotons or uh, the release of of photons from the organic process, the cellular process of metabolism. you uh, take psychedelics and then photons are released in the brain that cause all of these these lights, these flashing lights to cause hallucinations in the brain. Now, this, this is a very bad idea, and uh, I've spent a little bit of time studying biophotons, and I still get people writing me about, what do you think about biophotons? And it's very easy to explain why this is a, a bad idea. First of all, there are no photons in the brain. I mean, maybe there are photons in the brain, maybe biophotons are released, but, but photons in the brain do not produce the sensation of light. You could open up the visual cortex and shine a flashlight on the visual cortex, and you would not see that light register in your field of vision because the brain, the only part of the brain that processes photons is the retina. And if that light is not hitting the retina, then the brain is not going to perceive it as light. The brain perceives electric impulses on neurons in the visual cortex as light. So if you're seeing light in the brain, it's because electrical impulses are hitting the visual cortex, not because photons are hitting the the visual cortex. Photons hitting the visual cortex would do nothing. Um, You would have to be producing biophotons in the visible light range against the retina themselves in order for you to see light. And if that were the case... You could put somebody who is hallucinating on LSD or mushrooms in a dark room and have them open their eyes and you would see light shining out of their eyes, which of course doesn't happen. So the whole notion that biophotons are somehow causing um, phenomenological reactions in the brain is a bad idea. I'm not saying the body doesn't produce biophotons. We produce biophotons all the time. The body radiates heat energy, which is photonic energy in the infrared range all the time. If you have infrared glasses and you, and you look at a human body, you will see that we are releasing a halo of photons in the heat range all the time. But we don't see those photons. Our brains, our, our, our bodies, our retina are not wired to see those photons, because if we could see those photons, we would be blinded by our own heat signature all the time. So biophotons, bad idea. And as we go through the decades, the, the theories just get weirder and weirder until you have something like Zoe Sevens uh, Into the Void, where he theorizes that his personality is split across five different parallel dimensions, and that psychedelic tripping is actually a movement through interdimensional space so that you could leave one dimension and pop into another dimension and receive all of this information, and then pop back to the, to, to the dimension that you came from. There's, you know, there's a morphogenetic field theory, um, which is Rupert Sheldrake's baby, which is kind of similar. You get into all of these invisible field theories. Well, maybe there's a field out there. Maybe there's a spirit field that's just invisible to us. And when we take psychedelics, this field becomes visible and we can see all of the energy interactions in this field, which is another bad idea. Because if the human brain can see an invisible field while activated by psychedelics, you should be able to make a camera or some kind of sensor that would also be able to see that invisible field and measure it. And there is no such invisible field. You can't make a camera to see that invisible field because it doesn't exist. There is no... There are plenty of invisible fields in the world. I mean, there, there's a magnetic field. There's a, there's, there's a gravitational field. There's, you know, we live in a world where there are invisible fields that we interact with. But we can measure those fields. We know those fields. We are familiar with those fields. And we can have instruments, even if we can't see them with our eyes, we can create an instrument that can give us a picture of a magnetic field or give us a picture of a gravitational field. And they look like geometric lines. They don't look like, you know, crazy patterns and... uh, kaleidoscopic visions and 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 weird uh, pulsating clouds of light there is no invisible field like that that is all just internal hallucinations so these are all just really really bad ideas and then you get into the whole McKenna scope of bad ideas from the stone dape all the way up to uh, panspermia and the time wave and everything that goes along with it it's just a bucket of bad ideas you know, and not to mention uh, Rick Strassman's kind of take on the DMT spirit molecule, uh, spirit realm notion that this, you know, the DMT from the pineal gland, the pineal gland, uh, activates some sort of near-death experience where you can see into the, the realm of the, of the dead. And that's another bad idea, and I hesitate to call any of these things theories, Because theories generally are things that you can test. They have some element of testability so that you can prove whether they are correct or not correct. That's what differentiates an idea from a theory. And in the psychedelic community, I think at some point, maybe it was Leary's doing, he just decided. We don't need to test any of this because these ideas are all good. They're all good ideas. All of these theories are valid. We're just going to run with it. We're going we're to say whatever we want. And if anybody wants to talk about testability or truth or accuracy and reliability, we just change the subject and we get kookier and crazier until people say, whoa, again. And then we've done our job. So the problem with psychedelics is that every fool who has some sort of epiphany in a psychedelic state, believes that they've come up with something that is an actual, accurate idea. And more often than not, the ideas that you get in a psychedelic trip are bad ideas. And you need to understand that, you know, ideas are just ideas. You can have good ideas, you can have bad ideas. You don't need to own the ideas like they are a part of you you can you can take them for what they are like fleeting whims fleeting notions that may or may not be true that rely on further discovery to verify and i know this because i've had my own bad theories i started off in the in the psychedelic culture with my my own string of bad theories and i understand how easy it is to to come up with with the theories quote unquote theories That uh, seem like you've cracked the mystery of the psychedelic space, when in reality you've just kind of led yourself down a a hole of delusion that leads nowhere. And I can give you a couple examples of these ideas, because um, before I got into psychedelics, I had like a little fascination with the occult and black magic that kind of came out of the 70s and 80s and Dungeons and Dragons and uh, role-playing games and, like, the ideas that, you know, rock bands were masking suicidal messages into their records. If, you know, you played a Led Zeppelin record backwards, you can hear them invoking Satan's name or whatever. And, you know, I would listen to my Led Zeppelin records played backwards, and I would, like, think, oh, is is that a hidden message? Is that a hidden message? So I had this kind of you know, conspiratorial, occult, black magic, um, weird coincidence theory thing going on in my head even before I started with psychedelics. So when I started taking psychedelics and I noticed these things called synchronicities happening, I started developing this synchronicity theory and wondering if, if synchronicity was some kind of force that was operated by a chemical balance in the brain so that when you were open in a particular state, synchronicities sort of were attracted to you like a magnet. And I know there may be many of you who have taken LSD, or mushrooms, who feel like synchronicities start piling up on each other and suddenly you're in this place where everything is a massive coincidence happening trying to tell you something very important right now like a god or a collective unconsciousness or some sort of transpersonal expansion of your brain suddenly trying to feed you all this information and my synchronicity theory was about the sequence and the rate of coincidence coincidences piling up on each other and the closer the coincidences got To one another the closer you were to falling into a synchronicity hole where the entire universe becomes a synchronicity in time leading you to some kind of conclusion about your fate in the universe now I studied this I I followed this theory this idea for you know maybe six months or a year but I, lo- I began to lose interest in this theory when I realized that this synchronicity hole that I was studying, that I was kind of I was circling around, was actually a form of psychosis. And the manic beliefs, the paranoid delusions of grandeur, the parsing of random events as coincidences are characteristic of heavily psychotic or schizophrenic states. The synchronicity hole is psychosis, and the hidden coincidences around were an elaborate form of paranoia or pro uh, the feeling that the world is not out to get you, but the world is trying to push you in some positive direction towards some big reveal that's at the center of all coincidences. And of course, that big reveal at the center of the coincidences never comes or the reveal is something you know ambiguous, like uh, the universe is all about you, or you are the one that makes the universe, or something similarly obscure and resistant to further analysis. So I, I kind of came to the conclusion that this this synchronicity thing that I was hovering around in in the peak of the trip was actually psychosis, and it wasn't any kind of external force that was. Pulling me or leading me in a direction. It was, it was something happening in my own brain that was causing me to parse random information as synchronicities. Um, during that time, I also got into sacred geometry and I was doing a lot of uh, geometrical drawings and, and sort of sacred drawings in my sketchbooks. With, you know overlapping circles and triangles within circles and circles within triangles within circles and all of these things are kind of mandalas and pictographs and representative of world spiritualities from every culture and I thought that I was kind of getting close to something there with sacred geometry and I began studying um, Einstein and uh, space-time geometry, 4D space-time geometry, and black holes in particular, which led me towards this singularity theory where I was studying space-time and relativity and the speed-of-light paradoxes and what happens inside a black hole, and I was thinking about subatomic particles and gravitons and neutrinos and trying to mesh, you know, quantum theory, relativity theory, and gravitational field theory, all into this kind of sacred space-time geometry. And it took me a while to even figure out what I was studying. I mean, I didn't really know much about quantum particles or black holes or 4D space-time. I didn't even realize what the disconnect was between quantum theory and relativistic field theory. But I eventually figured it out that I wasn't studying any kind of magical uh, forces in the universe. I was studying matter. I was, I was studying the stuff that reality was made of, Forty spacetime space-time quantum theory. That's basically just studying how matter works. And particles and fields are the stuff that that matter is made of, the normal stuff, not the magical stuff of the psychedelic space. So the more I learned about Einsteinian gravity and quantum theory and, and quantum electrodynamics, the more I realized that I was, I was studying the wrong thing. I was studying the mundane parts of matter. I wasn't studying the elegant or, or strange parts of matter. Uh, and, and, and this is something that, that still eludes a lot of people today who don't understand quantum physics. They're willing to accept that quantum physics... Describes something more than matter, describes something more elusive and magical than what's going on with matter. But no, quantum physics is there to describe matter. And once you realize that, you realize that quantum physics doesn't really have any answers for anything other than matter. It doesn't explain consciousness, it doesn't explain. You know, non-locality or or synchronicities or or some sort of invisible field like a morphogenetic field, it just has nothing to do with that. But during this time, I'm looking back at my notes in the book. During this time, I had quite a lot of digressions through these these fields of study. I have uh, um, some notes about perceiving the soul as being equal to a single photon. One photon is one soul, because the photon is basically the lightest element of matter that you can get. So if there is a soul in the body that somehow leaves the body and enters the body, maybe it exists within a single photon. But then I learned how quickly photons could be created and destroyed, and absorbed, and recreated, and I realized that that was, that was not a good analogy. It was not a good metaphor, it was not a good anything. It was just a bad idea. And then there's, I spent some time looking at a dualist analysis about, well, what is this soul made of? And this was maybe in 1994. I was going totally off the rails in, in these journals that I was keeping, and I had developed something called quantum mythology, which was a symbolic linguistic analysis about light and matter and gravity and neutrinos, and I have this chart where light is the mother of all creation and matter is the father of all creation and life is a byproduct of light and matter interacting over time. And in, my notes, I, and in my notes, I drew a sun, I drew a chart of the mother and the father and the energy and how they overlapped in a Venn diagram with a DNA spiral in the middle And there's some notes about uh, matter being energy in a lower vibrational state. And I was talking about the molecular memory of water molecules. Um, And then I drew an actual little cartoon of a long road winding through a desert with the caption the long road to understanding. (laughs) Because I knew I was sort of scratching at something that I didn't really understand. And I have a note here that says, read from journal on enlightenment and entanglement. And I'm not going to read my notes on enlightenment and entanglement because uh, they're, they're nonsensical. But just know that I wrote a couple paragraphs trying to spell out the overlapping between the buddhist notion of enlightenment and the quantum physical notion of particle entanglement and it doesn't really make any sense but there it was that's kind of where my head was at the time quantum mythology i was all about the quantum mythology and i don't know how long this lasted i mean maybe it lasted a couple months maybe it lasted a year But this was right around the time that i was starting to go out and interview people in the community and started working with psychedelic illuminations magazines so i had a lot of different influences coming in and out of my life a lot of different drugs that i was experimenting with and a lot of different people and a lot of different ideas that i was churning and i was studying pretty solidly a spirit model i was following rituals I was essentially practicing magic, which you know led me towards insanity, which I discussed in a in a previous episode. But this led me back towards insanity later, which I will discuss in another episode. This is just a funny aside. In one book, I in one notebook I have from 1999, it's deep in the period where I'm publishing Trip Magazine. I'm living in Seattle and I'm publishing Trip Magazine, and during that time I was working as a uh, contractor, a programmer, doing programming work for Microsoft, and on the cover of this journal from 1999 is a pile of stickers, maybe 15 or 16 deep, from all of the visitor badges I had to have printed out and wear while visiting Microsoft campus for various meetings. And this is the notebook I took to all of those contractor meetings that I carried around with me in 1999 while I was contracting for Microsoft. But inside the book, with all of these contractor visitor stickers on the outside, inside there 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 are no notes about contracting or programming. It's all details about uh, distributors I needed to call, advertisers I needed to contact, uh, interviews with people I needed to set up, articles that needed editing, uh, phone calls I needed to return, emails I needed to return, all related to publishing the magazine. So... At some point in my life, between 1994 and 1999, my journals moved from me thinking about crazy wild theory and trying to figure out how psychedelics worked and how they linked back into spirituality and the fabric of of reality. And they became much more to-do lists of things that I needed to get done to keep the magazine publishing, while still working on my day job as a contractor for Microsoft. So after I started the magazine, all my notes are about work, not about theory. And at some point there in that span of time, I kind of just left all of the theory behind. Uh, I don't really have any notes about theory during that time except for a few small notes about studying receptor interaction. And I look back at 1999, and I see that even back then I was working on a theory where LSD molecules stuck on receptors for very long periods of time, which would be, you know, tens of seconds, 20 seconds, instead of you know, the milliseconds or microseconds that a normal ligand would would stick to uh, a neural receptor. Now, by this time, I had changed all of my theory. I had changed up the focus of my theory. I had moved away from sort of the spiritual and the external and and the weird, uh, crazy physics and moved back into the brain studying neurons and receptors. And the, the, the idea that I was, I was trying to figure out was that if there is a kind of circuit in the brain that allows perception to be aware, to be awake, you know, and I was, I was kind of talking about the serotonin pathway in the brain, even though I wasn't exactly sure at the time what I was talking about. I was thinking that if there was a circuit in the brain that allowed you to be aware. You know, when you open your eyes and wake up, the this this circuit activates and you, you, you suddenly have awareness of the space around you. What if the signaling chemicals that cause this circuit to open stuck for longer than they were supposed to and allow these circuits to hang open? So that instead of just getting, you know, flickering slices of information coming at you, very quickly over a period of many seconds you would have information that just poured into your brain like water just just poured through your brain like a waterfall rushing instead of just you know snippets of information hitting your awareness as you as you look at them now this theory was crazy at the time but eventually the foundations of this idea were tightened up into what became psychedelic information theory, which eventually became signal theory and then psychedelic information theory. And I actually talked to a couple different people at the time who knew about pharmacology and psychopharmacology and receptor interaction, and I said, you know, how long do you think you know, that these molecules stick at receptors. How long does a ligand stick at a a receptor? And they were like, oh, you know, milliseconds or microseconds. I was like, what would happen if, you know, an LSD molecule or a psilocybin molecule stuck at one of these receptors and then hung there for a long period of time? And they would just go, oh, well, no, 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 you don't understand. They've People have already done the in vitro studies with LSDs and receptors, and the, the, there is, you know, there's some difference in the way it binds and releases and the, the secondary messengers that happen. But that doesn't, it doesn't hang open like that. It doesn't hang open like that. But, as I will talk about in a later episode, it turns out that I was onto something. LSD may stick at receptors for up to many hours at a time which is a huge recent discovery. But at this point, it's not surprising to me. It's only surprising that people are still doing this research and still following this path and trying to, to come up with, you know, ideas or, or, or meet ideas that I was like having 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I'm not trying to imply that that I'm a genius for, you know, coming up with these ideas uh, on my own. I just find it weird that I had one good idea out of the dozens of bad ideas, maybe hundreds of bad ideas that I had considered over the years. Now, it's, it's unusual maybe that I was able to move through all of these different theories, move through all of these different bad ideas without ever getting stuck on one. I never, I never really became stuck on any theory to the point where I thought, oh, I'm going to write a book about this and this is going to blow Terrence McKenna out of the water or I'm going to write a book about this and this is going to blow you know, Tim Leary's Eighth Circuit model out of the water. I had I, never gotten to that point. I never really had a lot of confidence behind the ideas that I was generating because they were all out there. I mean, all of these psychedelic ideas are out there um and that's kind of a a hallmark of of psychedelic theorizing and philosophizing is that you need to go out there you need to go to the outer fringe and bring back something that people had never seen before and at the time i really didn't know what it was that i was trying to say i didn't know uh i didn't really have the confidence of being a PhD or being an academic or being somebody who does a lot of research and a lot of publishing. I was just, you know, I was publishing a magazine because I was trying to meet people and find the information out there. Very hard to find. But my own ideas, I realized, were, were kind of lacking and not really filled out around the edges. So it took me a lot longer before I was confident enough to publish anything because I had seen the long line of crackpots that had come before me and I didn't really want to be another crackpot in a line of crackpots because the psychedelic community has enough of those and the psychedelic community will continue to generate crackpots because it's a crackpot factory. The psychedelic community is a crackpot factory. It just churns them out like widgets. So I was very careful never to write anything or publish anything or release anything that sort of sniffed at pseudoscience, sniffed of pseudoscience or crack pottery, because you can't come back from that. Once you go down that road, that's who you are. You're the you're the crackpot psychedelic researcher guy who spouts off about stuff that's just crazy. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be that person because I've seen what happens to those people. I know some of those people and Those people have their unique ideas and oftentimes they turn out to be very, very wrong.
1: This visionary world is very highly prized by people and that they they will go out of their way uh, to get into it. People have paid a great price.
0: Those are the words of Aldous Huxley from his 1961 lecture on the visionary experience, talking about how the visionary world is an extremely prized place and that people will pay a very high price to get to it. And I'm starting this segment with Huxley because I want to illustrate just exactly how far you can go with a bad idea, and how bad ideas can trickle down past you and affect the lives of people that maybe you've never met. Huxley, of course, was very famous for writing The Doors of Perception in 1954, which was one of the first books to explore altered states of consciousness in any detailed way for a mainstream audience. Now, if you, if you read Huxley's writings, or if you go back and listen to that lecture on the visionary experience, you will find that Huxley has no differentiation between any type of visionary experience. To him, there is only one visionary world, and there are multiple ways to get there. For instance, you could use yoga, meditation, an isolation tank hypnosis, uh, some other form of uh, disciplinary practice that will lead you to the visionary state, like taking mescaline or psychedelics will lead you to the visionary state. But once you are there in the visionary state, all visionary states are the same. Huxley's belief and Huxley's assertion is that all mystics are trying to get to the same visionary place, and that once you're in that visionary place, it doesn't matter what the method is for getting there. You have attained the visionary state, and that is the prize that all mysticism seeks. The prize of all mysticism is finding this visionary state. And Huxley makes a very good argument, a very strong argument, that people are willing to do anything to get to that visionary state. People who prize that visionary state will take chances, they will, they will risk their lives, they will do all sorts of bodily contortions or mental contortions or self-torture or things like fasting and self-deprivation to get to that visionary state. And that the fact that people will go to such lengths to get to that visionary prize demonstrates that it is extremely important. It is extremely important to people, or to the, to the human race, to the entire human endeavor. Uh, Huxley goes, goes so far as to say that it's, it's tantamount, it's instrumental to the human experience. Otherwise, people would not be seeking it with such a passion. Now, following this logic, Huxley came up with one of the first theories about how psychedelics work. About how psychedelics cause the brain or cause the mind to achieve this visionary experience. And he describes it in Doors of Perception and in other places as a reducing valve theory, or sometimes it's just known as the valve theory. And what this theory presumes is that the brain is like a reducing valve for sensation, it is a big, elaborate chamber. Of valves that reduce incoming information only to that which is the most important for the individual in that moment so for example you may be walking down a busy street looking for a bus stop and there are thousands of things hundreds of thousands of things going on all around you cars moving people going by, planes flying overhead, uh, towering buildings reaching up to the sky. Who knows what's going on in all of that? However, your brain reduces, it filters out all of that information. and only shows you the one thing that you're looking for, which is the sign for the bus stop. So you focus in on that sign and move to the bus stop, and your brain basically filters out. It reduces everything else around you. And this is a pretty good assumption because uh, when it comes to perception, the brain does work this way. Uh, The brain does a lot of filtering of primary sensation before it's passed up to higher consciousness for review. So a lot of the background noise, a lot of the detail of everyday life, your brain does filter that out. Your brain does reduce the amount of sensation that's coming in and it limits you to focusing on only the things that you need to be worried about in the moment. That are important to you. Now taking this conjecture as a kind of truth, Huxley then went on to say that if the doors of perception could be opened, if we could somehow find a way to open up those valves so that they're not reducing the sensation coming in, they're not reducing primary sensation, what we would be receiving is some sort of raw form of reality, raw unfiltered reality that's pouring through us with no filters and no reducing valve and that's why he named his book the doors of perception because he was fascinated with the idea of of blowing open these doors um, losing that reducing factor that was just relevant to the self and blowing sensation and blowing perception open to the entire world the entirety of everything so that instead of just seeing the little pieces of the world that were important to you in the moment, you could, ex- you could experience the total grandeur of creation in one second. And his firm belief, his very firm belief, up until his dying day, was that all forms of mysticism and all forms of visionary practice were a means to opening those reducing valves and letting raw sensation pour in, opening the doors of perception and allowing yourself to become aware of larger creation with no filters. And I'm introducing the Valve Theory now, Huxley's Valve Theory now, as a kind of prototype for bad ideas that come out of psychedelic thought. The Reducing Valve Theory is presented as a scientific theory it's presented as a scientific theory talking about the mechanics of the brain the functioning of the brain the filtering of perception and how psychedelics kind of undo that filtering it's presented as a very logical practical physical theory and because of that people were very willing to accept that this theory was truth, that this was the actual way that psychedelics work, that Huxley had figured it out, he'd cracked the code of mysticism, and now he knew the true way to get to the visionary experience. All we need to do is remove these filters from the brain, and voila, the visionary experience is there. And you can do that, like I said, through hypnosis, through meditation, through fasting, deprivation, whatever means you want. Just as long as you remove those filters, you will be left at the center of the visionary experience now on the surface this sounds very scientific and very cut and dried and very to the point there's not a whole lot of clutter in this theory we just have a reducing valve and we have a chemical that opens that valve or we have a mystical practice that opens that valve pretty simple pretty simple pretty reductive which is why it's easy to catch on to this theory and say yeah that that makes sense when I take a psychedelic, I feel like my mind is opening to all of the sensation that I don't normally feel that maybe I might normally filter out. So this sounds and feels like a credible theory. And not only just like a, like a, like a metaphysical theory, but an actual physical theory, a scientific theory, a sound scientific theory that we can all stand behind and get behind and, and use as a basis for going forward and exploring these substances. However, when I look at the valve theory, and even when I looked at it back in the 90s, when I was first studying this this stuff, first of all, I thought, well, it seems a little too simple. It seems a little too simple that this is, that this is the way it works. The second thing I thought was that, well, not all visionary and mystical practice is the same. I've had a lot of different types of hallucinogens and a lot of different types of visionary experiences. And, you know, the the kind of visionary experience that you have on ketamine, for instance, is very different than the kind of visionary experience that you have on mushrooms, which is a, a very different than the kind of visionary experience that you might have, you know, hiking to the top of a mountain and then looking down at the valley at the end of the day and seeing the wonder of the world. Those are all mystical experiences. Those are all visionary experiences. They open the mind to see things that, that they wouldn't normally see, and they, they test the limits of, of, of what your perception can actually take in. So, so this, that was the other thing. is I didn't, never really bought into Huxley's notion that there is only one true visionary experience and that all different methods lead you to the same place. But the other problem I have with this theory, and maybe the major problem I have with this theory, is that it's not really a scientific theory. It's based on some scientific principles. It's based on some physical principles of perception. But it is not, in essence, a scientific theory where Huxley went and collected some evidence and did some research and then put it all together and formulated a theory based on his findings. This was a supposition that Huxley made based on a very limited understanding of how the brain works because of course back in the 1950s very few people understood really anything about the brain it was just a very nascent time in learning about how the brain works so Huxley was making some suppositions based on mysticism a tiny little bit of neuroscience but mostly this is a religious argument and I will explain why Huxley's core conjecture was that when you open up the doors of perception and you see reality in its true form, that what you are actually seeing is God. Now, from what I can understand, Huxley was not a classic Christian. Um, in fact, he had an extensive association with the Vendanta Society long before uh, his first experience with Mescaline. So Huxley was predisposed to these mystical explanations for visionary experience before he was ever introduced to psychedelic drugs, uh, around the spring of 1953. But it's clear when you listen to him speak, or if you read The Doors of Perception, that what he is getting at, what he is asserting, is that humans in their normal state have a very small sense of self in reality, which is constrained by the reducing valve of the brain, and that through mystical experience, through the visionary experience, you can open up those restraints and allow yourself to see creation as it really is, to see creation through the eyes of God, see creation as God would see it or as a creator would see it because Huxley doesn't doesn't have Huxley doesn't forward a negative or adversarial relationship with nature. Uh he tends to speak in terms that would indicate that creation and nature and the natural world are these wondrous things. They're these wondrous things that hold all the wisdom and, uh, and all of the wonder. So he, he speaks in rapturous terms about what is in store for you in the center of the visionary experience when you have opened your doors of perception. It's not that you open your doors of perception and you're suddenly hit with an onslaught of all of the horrors of the world or all of the negative evil things that happen in the world. Or all of the unfair and unjust things that happen in the world. All the people dying of disease and starvation and and natural disasters and war and flood and famine. He doesn't mention any of that. When the doors of perception open, all of that negative stuff in the world sort of disappears. And all you're left with is the grandeur and the wonder and the lifting of the veil to see, you know, the eternal creation unfolding through space and time. In very, you know, kind of flowery language. So... He definitely had an agenda and a point of view behind this reducing valve theory, which did not point to an underlying ugliness or evil or darkness inside people or creation. No, he was always he was always, you know, opening the doors of perception and embracing the light, lifting the veil, and coming to some truth. Uh, and and he presented the theory within those confines. So his essential philosophy is that creation is good. Creation is wondrous. The world is wondrous. And we humans trapped in our little tiny reducing valve brains have somehow lost touch with that, that, that wonder, that greatness, that grandeur, because we have such tiny little rat mazes in our mind, which are keeping us locked in the pettiness of, of greed and and war and corruption and and all of these human vices because of that reducing valve humans have gone bad somehow humans have have gotten petty because we're living in our little reducing valve world and once we open our doors of perception then we will become full human beings will become transpersonalized and open to the wonder and goodness of the world and and these 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 biases are inherent in in huxley's in huxley's writings and they do follow a kind of judeo-christian attitude about the world and that god is good creation is good everything in creation is essentially good but humans are tainted because of this original sin and because of this original sin we have lost our contact to God, and we're always fighting to get ourselves back there, to, percept- to perfect ourselves so that we can or humble ourselves or purify ourselves, so we can get back to that connection of connection to God, or that connection to creation that is all good, so that we can transcend or sublimate out of our tiny little rat maze of pettiness and jealousy and evil and embrace this, this grandeur that is the wonder of God, or creation, or the glory of creation. So all of these pieces of the reducing valve theory, it's a little too simple. It ignores the fact that there are multiple types of visionary experience, and it is inherently biased to say that humans in their natural state are somehow broken, Or blind or are missing something essential about creation made me feel like this was a bad idea this reducing valve theory is a bad idea based on an agenda based on a bias and based on an intuition I think that Huxley felt very deeply but that was essentially wrong and the wrong part about this from my point of view is that there is nothing inherently incorrect or broken about humans in their natural state humans in their natural state are capable of a wide variety of amazing things and to start with the conjecture that we're all living in a reducing valve that's essentially blinders for reality I think is incorrect i think that's an incorrect assumption to begin with number one number two the assumption that the visionary state or a mystical experience is somehow more real or exposes you to more natural sensation or more sensation that is clearer or somehow uh, better than your natural perception i think is also false there's you know the visionary state is not the same as your normal daily consciousness but that doesn't mean that it's better it doesn't mean that it's inherently better or that the wisdom or the information that you receive in the visionary state is somehow more pure or truer than information that you receive in a sober state those assumptions i think are wishful thinking And Huxley fell for the facade of this wishful thinking, hoping that through the visionary experience or through mysticism or through the use of of psychedelic drugs, he was tapping into a side of reality that was somehow purer or better or more wondrous than the reality that he experienced in his normal state. And I think that those assumptions are inaccurate and misguided. I understand where they come from. I understand the impulse to say, oh, wow, I had this very amazing visionary experience or this this transcendent experience. Therefore, because it felt amazing and because I had all of these amazing insights, that state, that visionary state, that mystical state where I had all these amazing feelings, that's the real reality. That that state where I was drugged into confusion or I had meditated or uh, fasted or flogged myself into a, a state of near psychosis, somehow that state is purer, more true and more idealized than the natural state of consciousness that we're born with. I think that is the essential flaw of the valve theory is that it places an idealized weight an idealized value on the visionary experience, which is not accurate. And this is one of the themes that I'm trying to revisit here over and over in these podcasts, is that the visionary state is not inherently better or more pure or more ideal than the natural state. And I think that that's, well, it's, it's obvious to me humans spend the majority of their waking lives in their natural state in their reduced valve state and they accomplish a great deal of things you know they civilization invention all of the things that we do in our natural brain state uh, they should not be discounted just because there are some evil and petty things that go along with that and by the same token the visionary state produces almost nothing of value that I can see, that I observe. I've been observing psychedelic exploration for the last 25 years. I've talked to the biggest minds in the field um, and the biggest minds in the underground, people who have had hundreds, if not thousands of of exposures to psychedelic space to mystical space and I have not found one person who can give me any concrete example of some amazing idea or something profound that happened to them that they learned in a psychedelic state that they could not have learned in a normal state in a, in a normal state of mind and this is this is a big point of contention between me and most of the psychedelic community. I particularly do not find a whole lot of lasting value in the material I find in a psychedelic space. There's momentary value, there's instantaneous value, there's emotional value, there's some kind of personal insight, but those could all be delusions. Those could all be kind of figmented. Those could be lies that your brain tells yourself while you're high or while you're psychotic. And only when you come back down to being sober can you actually sift through all of that content and say, well, is this useful? Is that useful? Is this a good idea? Is that a bad idea? And without that sifting of content, without that integration, the the experience by itself means nothing. The experience might as well be a dream that you have and then immediately forget, because that is the bulk of a psychedelic experience is it's, it's this, this wild dream of visions and ideas that you have. And once the drug wears off, all of these, all of those ideas and visions, they start to fade away. Some stick with you. I mean, if they're important or they're good, they might stick with you, but a lot of them, they just kind of fade away. And I don't really feel like there's a whole lot of value in that mystical experience. And this point can be argued over and over and over again till the end of history. Um, There are people who will say the mystical experience is the most valuable part of the human experience. I tend to think of it as kind of a sideshow or um, a kind of special bonus that goes along with the human experience. But it is not the core of human experience because from what I can see, From what I see through just observation, not what people tell me, not what I read in books, not what gurus say, what I see, what I see with my, what I observe with my own eyes and I hear with my own ears, is that the main product of mystical experience is bullshit. The main product of mystical experience is some kind of spoken bullshit. It may be poetic, it may be profound, it may be religious. It may touch on the philosophy of creation and why we're all here, but it is essentially bullshit. A guru sits and meditates for hours on a psychedelic drug. What do they come back with? Do they come back with a schematic for building, uh, you know, a matter-energy transfer device? No, they come back with some words of wisdom. End quote. They come back with some words of wisdom, in quote, which are usually riddles, which are usually these kind of koan-like riddles that cause people to spin into uh, a kind of cognitive disarray, which doesn't give them anything other than more questions and more confusions. So the primary product of mystical experience, of the visionary experience, even though the experience itself is a jewel of human phenomenology, according to Huxley, it is one of the pro- the crown jewels of, of, of what a human can experience, the visionary state. The primary thing you bring back from the visionary state is bullshit. And so the visionary state is just a massive bullshit producer. And, you know, there's, there's probably uh, a, a, p- a positive side of that. Bullshit makes the world go round. You know, if it wasn't for bullshit, it would be hard to organize people under a singular belief system like religion or a pol- political platform or an ideology. Um, all of those things are built on a foundation of bullshit. So bullshit may be the compost that allows society to grow and, and thrive. But that doesn't mean the bullshit itself is some kind of, um, some kind of jewel to be, to be held above all in terms of value. Because as we've seen in you know, wars of competing religion, wars of competing ideology... You can replace bullshit with another tier of bullshit, and you can just have bullshit fights that go on forever, which is what I think most of philosophy is. Most of philosophy, like arguing about, you know, free will, is there a soul? It's just a lot of hot air back and forth. Nobody's ever going to answer these questions. It's just a lot of bullshit, and whoever can come up with the most confounding and perplexing bullshit tends to be the best philosopher whoever can ask the question that can't be answered, whoever can fashion a question that by its nature has no answer, that person becomes lauded as a great philosopher. But really they're just a great bullshit artist because they, they've created a thread of language, a supposition that causes other people to be confused and unable to produce a sound answer. And because of that the 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 person who invents the koan is is lifted to a level of mastery over logic and reason. And to be honest, but you know, for most of human history, most of, of human civilization, the person or the culture with the strongest bullshit rose to the top because they could unify a tribe of people or tribes of people around a central ideology, a central theme, or a central pile of bullshit that they're all gathered around. And it wasn't until the adoption of the scientific method, sometime in the late 17th century, early 18th century, that people started clearing the bullshit out of the observations of the world and started looking at the world from a very fundamental point of view of not what do people say the world is, what is the world actually when we look at it and we test it. So the scientific method was a valuable tool for cutting through the bullshit of society and getting to the core of what's really going on in reality. And in many ways, the scientific method... And scientific discovery makes the production of bullshit somewhat obsolete the production of bullshit becomes an obsolete craft in the face of a higher rationality a higher objective observational rationality that could easily counter the bullshit with with logic and observation which is one reason I tend to think or I make the assertion that psychedelics are fundamentally incompatible with the modern world because the modern world values the conclusions of objective science, the conclusions, the hard, unescapable truths, the conclusions of objective science, and it does not need more bullshit factories. Since the advent of the scientific method, the value of bullshit has been going down. So people who come up, who rise to, who ascend to the level of celebrity on a pile of bullshit, they get taken down very quickly. They get taken down very quickly by anybody who has any scientific acumen to say, well, wait a second. That bullshit doesn't smell right. I'm going to make some observations and see if it's correct. And this is where you get the skeptics movement. You know, bullshit is the enemy of skepticism. Skepticism seeks to dig modern culture out of the bullshit so that we can leave it in the past. And yet we have these visionary chemicals that are literally dumping people back into the primal idea space where bullshit comes from. And beyond that, these chemicals leave the user in a state where they are electrified by their own bullshit. They are fascinated with, obsessed with, consumed with, and entirely infatuated With their own bullshit and this runs counter to the fundamental nature of progress and civilization which is that we don't need more bullshit we don't need more bullshit factories and we don't need more you know uh, street corner prophets and messiahs trying to tell the world what's what trying to tell the world how it is because we have scientific and academic institutions that are now doing that research and are cataloging those, those details. The mystics and the prophets and the gurus, with their words of wisdom, again in quotes, words of wisdom, they're just muddying up the picture for everybody. They're making it unclear. They're making the wor- reality unclear when the line of progress seeks to be clarifying. And so while science and culture and people involved in mysticism and mystical exploration, while we know the visionary experience itself has value because people will seek it out, people will pay for it, people will people will do, as Huxley says, all sorts of perilous things to try and get to the visionary state. The visionary state... Feels very valuable, the product of the visionary state, what you return with after the visionary state, the value of that product is still extremely dubious. And I don't think science or culture or anybody, n- nobody in the psychedelic movement, nobody in the mystical movement, nobody in any movement knows what to do with the bullshit that you bring back after a visionary experience. this is the big problem. This, in a nutshell, is the big problem with psychedelic exploration. So, why is Huxley's reducing valve theory such a bad idea? I mean, it seems relatively innocuous to assume that the uh, brain works as a reducing valve and that mystical practice or taking psychedelic drugs somehow opens that valve so that you can see the fullness of all reality, see things that you might not have otherwise seen. It seems like a really... uh, simple idea, something that, you know, is maybe a physiological metaphor for mystical experience. Now, the reason I say it's a bad idea, first of all, is because it is essentially a mystical idea posing as a scientific theory. The reducing valve theory starts with the brain. It starts with the notion that the brain is somehow created to reduce incoming sensation and therefore leaving us blind to something external that we cannot see. That part seems scientific, but when you look at the phenomenology, where does the visionary experience come from? What are we actually experiencing in a psychedelic state? Where is that visionary world? Well, if you read Huxley closely, you'll see that he is falling into the basic trap of externalizing agency. The Valve theory presents itself as being about the brain, but when you dig into it, essentially what you find is that Huxley's claim is that the visionary experience does not come from the brain. It is external to the brain. And psychedelic drugs or mystical practice merely open up the capacity of the brain to see something external that you hadn't seen before. Now, I've talked in previous episodes and earlier in this episode about theories that I had come to and eventually dismissed because I realized very early on that externalizing agency as a means of describing or explaining hallucinatory phenomena is a kind of psychosis if you have a hallucination or you have a visionary experience or a mystical experience perhaps one of the first intuitions you might have is to assume that that experience is coming from outside of you and that i think is a normal reaction it's it's hard to sometimes think that all of this crazy stuff that you're seeing or all of this magical wonderful stuff that you're seeing is being generated within you Because all of the sensations can appear so extremely foreign, it is a lot easier to assume that what you're seeing is coming from outside of you. Because it is mysterious and because it is complex and magical and you don't understand it, it's easier to assume that it comes from outside of you. Any theory of hallucination or any theory of visionary experience that seeks to externalize the agency, externalize the source Of wherever the information is coming from it is not a scientific theory it is a mystical theory it is a theory that posits that there is a magical world out there a spirit world a visionary world out there that we are all blind to and that only by opening our doors of perception can we see that magical world now that in my opinion no matter how you couch it no matter what kind of scientific or pseudoscientific elements you add to that theory Any theory that externalizes the agency of hallucination is a bad idea. So that's first and foremost. The second reason why Huxley's Valve Theory is a bad idea is because it introduces the concept of expanded consciousness. At its core, Huxley's Valve Theory is very dismissive and derogatory towards human consciousness. It essentially asserts that human consciousness... Is somehow crippled or blinded by this reducing valve in the brain. And that we're all walking around reality with these blinders and this really, really tiny, small consciousness. And that only through the magic of mystical practice or hallucinatory drugs can you expand your consciousness to its fullest. You can expand your consciousness beyond this tiny little sad reduced state and open up the doors of perception into this amazing fully aware consciousness that is expanded and beyond your normal consciousness. Now this is an extremely bad idea because one, it's wrong. It's just flat wrong. And two, it's dangerous because it plants the notion in people's heads that the consciousness that they're born with, the consciousness that they live with their entire life, the consciousness that they have to use to cope with their reality, it assumes that that consciousness is somehow incomplete or not good enough or second best. It assumes that the normal consciousness we walk around with every day is actually a state of ignorance. It's actually a state of planned ignorance biologically planned ignorance that we're all stuck in like a prison. And that if we could only escape that prison of ignorance, we would be super bright, super conscious, super clairvoyant, and have immediate access to all the wisdom of the universe. Now, not only is this a lie, it's a dangerous lie, because it leads people to think that there is something more outside of their normal everyday consciousness that is somehow achievable if they just follow the right set of practices or rituals or just take the right drugs that will allow them to expand their consciousness into this higher awareness, into this higher state of awareness so that people can become instantly brilliant, instantly brilliant and instantly in this, this state of all-knowing perfection all the time once you just figure out what the secret of the valve is. And I will submit to you that this kind of thinking will lead somebody who experiments with psychedelics into a narcissistic state of superiority. People who are exposed to this valve theory, who are told that, oh, you're, you're living in a reduced state of awareness you're living in a reduced state of consciousness people who are told who are exposed to that theory and are then given a dose of LSD and are then told see now your consciousness is expanded don't you see how much more creative you are how much more visionary you are how much how many more ideas you have now that your 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 consciousness is expanded Well, of course, this is going to lead people to believe I'm special because I've expanded my consciousness and all the rest of you people in the world, you're still walking around in your blind, ignorant, little reduced states. Whereas I, who have been exposed to this secret, now have an expanded consciousness. And even though I didn't know Huxley and I don't really know much about Huxley other than what I've read about him and uh, various lectures that I've heard, It seems to me that Huxley was very smug and superior about his grasp of mysticism and his grasp of the doors of perception and the valve theory in this expanded state. He very much believed that he was on the cutting edge of a consciousness revolution and that the moksha medicine, LSD or mescaline or whatever it was, when applied to the masses, would cause some huge shift in global consciousness. It would be like a cleansing or a healing balm for the entire world. And this goes back to the episode where I talked about Albert Hoffman and the ideas that he presented in the last chapter of his book, LSD, My Problem Child, where He proposes that LSD is a cure for the existential malaise of the human condition, and that it's actually a sacred drug to be used to combat the evils of, you know, mechanized industrialization or uh, the ennui of living in an industrialized life. And I called this a kind of smug European intellectualism, where uh, these European intellectuals believed that they can fix the world or heal the world through the application of their their brilliant series. Their brilliant series are going to be used to, to heal the world in this very narcissistic martyr syndrome about you know, identifying victims and then being the savior, swooping in and being the savior. We are going to deliver expanded consciousness. We're going to deliver the moksha medicine to the people. And once they experience expanded consciousness, they'll never go back and the world will never be the same. So that's the second reason it's a bad idea. It comes with a built-in sense of narcissism and superiority saying that, hey, you, everybody in the world, you're ignorant. You're living in a reduced valve But we who have learned the secret, who have learned the secret of the valve theory, we can expand our minds and open our doors of perceptions and somehow become better than you. Okay, that's a bad idea. Because essentially it's driven by greed. It's driven by greed for a better consciousness. You know, I don't think my consciousness is good enough. Therefore, I want a better consciousness and I want it to be delivered to me easily. I just want to do one thing and I want my consciousness to expand immediately. I want instant gratification and I want my consciousness to be expanded so that I can be superior too. It's a very greedy, narcissistic, smug, and superior theory when you actually look at it. So those are the reasons why I think the valve theory is bad. But we can keep going. We can keep going and and cut ahead to the future a little bit. We can keep going and jump ahead in time a little bit. Huxley's Doors of Perception came out in in the 50s, I think maybe 1954. The valve theory was out there. He gave his lecture on the visionary experience in, I think, 1961. And he kind of unleashed this idea on the world. And now we're going to jump to 1964 and talk about a Dutch man by the name of Bart Hughes. Bart Hughes was a medical student at the University of Amsterdam pursuing his medical degree, and he was fascinated with the idea that consciousness is directly related to the volume of blood in your brain. And he published a paper called The Mechanism of Brain-Blood Volume, proposing that human beings, because we're walking around upright all the time, we're constantly draining blood out of our head. We're constantly draining blood out of our head because of gravity. And because blood is draining out of our head, we are constantly living in a reduced state of consciousness. And if only there was some mechanical way to increase the volume of blood to the head, to open up the blood valve, if you will, and allow the blood to flow into the brain more freely, then consciousness will become expanded. Because the more blood that you get in your brain, the more glucose and oxygen you get in your brain, therefore the more perceptive you will become and your consciousness will jump to an expanded level. Now I'm drawing a sideways connection here between Bart Hughes and Aldous Huxley because I'm assuming at some point Bart Hughes was exposed to Huxley's valve theory. And why do I think that? Because in addition to be a medical student and being fascinated with the volume of blood in the brain and consciousness, he was also an advocate for the use of marijuana and secretly an extremely extremely massive acid head among the things that bart hughes liked to experiment with were acid mescaline and marijuana all in attempts of improving blood flow to the brain to expand consciousness now the correlations to the valve theory are obvious Aldous Huxley proposes a mechanism, a reducing valve in the brain, that tamps down perception. And that if you open up that valve, and you allow perception to come into the brain freely, then your your consciousness expands. Bart Hughes followed that same theory, except he added another component to it, a biological component. His thinking was that if there is a valve in the brain, and it is reducing the flow of something it must be the flow of blood, because that's what blood vessels do. They expand and they contract. And if you are contracting the flow of blood to the brain, you are somehow living in a perceptually limited environment. Since, you know, we're all dealing with gravity, blood doesn't flow to our brain as fast as it should, according to Bart Hughes, which is why we're all walking around in this limited, reduced state. And that if you take drugs, for instance... That increase the flow of of blood to your brain suddenly you achieve expanded consciousness and this this was his theory now Bart Hughes never made it through medical school he was kicked out basically for smoking marijuana or being a drug head so he isn't he would never gained scientific legitimacy as a scientist or an academic He was always sort of out there on the fringe as somebody experimenting with extremely, extremely new methods and techniques. And one of the methods and techniques that Bart Hughes became fascinated with is trepanation, or the use of a drill to poke a hole in your skull, theoretically to relieve pressure on the inside of the cranial cavity allowing more blood to flow to the brain. Bart Hughes became so fascinated with this idea that in his 1964 paper, The Mechanism of Brain Blood Volume, he proposed that trepanation could be used to enhance brain functionality by balancing the proportion of blood and cerebral spinal fluid in the brain. And here I'm quoting from Wikipedia. Hughes believed that when mankind began to walk upright, our brains drained of blood, and that trepanation allowed the blood to better flow in and out of the brain, causing a permanent high, in quotes. So, after publishing his paper in 1964, he decided to put his money where his mouth was. So, in 1965, he got a foot-operated dentist drill, an electric dentist drill, and use that drill to stab a hole in the forehead of his own skull on January 6, 1965. And if you go to Bart Hughes's Wikipedia page, you can actually see a picture of him with a scalpel uh, cutting a little piece of his forehead skin away so that he can drill into his skull. This is extreme dedication to a scientific idea. And unlike Huxley's theory, which was kind of a mystical theory, at least Bart Hughes had a biological component to this theory, which was the brain brain blood volume. And he was willing to take the step, to take the leap of faith, to drill a hole in his own head to prove that his theory of brain blood volume was actually correct. Now think about this. Think about if you were a psychedelic researcher or theorist. Think about me. I am a psychedelic researcher and amateur theorist. If somebody asked me, would you be willing to drill a hole in your skull to prove your theory? My immediate reaction would be no. No scientific theory is worth that. It's not worth doing the experimentation on myself. First of all, because it's dangerous, number one. And number two, any experimentation I do on myself, I cannot then share with other people. It It is it is my own research and my word and it's, it's in my head. So if I were to drill a hole in my head and say, gee, that really made me high, there is no way for me to validate that scientifically. There is no way for me to validate that unless... I can go around and convince many other people to drill holes in their head to confirm what I've found now this is where it goes from a little bit crazy to a little bit diabolical because Bart Hughes trepanned himself he he bored a hole in his forehead through his skull and also had the audacity to publish a paper called trepanation a cure for psychosis in which he expanded upon his theory of brain blood volume now think about this think about this a guy who is a known acid head who's out there with extreme ideas drills a hole in his head drills a hole in his own head, and then claims that this is a cure for psychosis. Dropping a lot of acid, smoking a lot of weed, drilling a hole in your forehead is the cure for psychosis. That's the cure, according to Bart Hughes. Picking up a dentist drill and drilling a hole in your head is the cure for psychosis. Can you understand the irony of this statement? The irony is that drilling a hole in your head is the exact opposite of the cure for psychosis. It is a symptom of psychosis. You would have to be psychotic and delusional to drill a hole in your own head and believe that you were actually doing yourself good and not harm. You would have to be insane. There's just no other way that you can parse this behavior. Because, and I would have said this to Bart Hughes, had I been around in 1964 when he was considering drilling a hole in his head, I would have said, hey, Bart, you know what? We've had a couple world wars. We've had veterans come back from war with bullet holes and grenade fragment holes in their head. We can just go and interview people who have had holes popped through their head with military machinery on the battlefield. And not only that, there, are, there were neurosurgeons at the time experimenting with the practice of opening up the skull in the case of, of dramatic brain swelling to allow the patient's brain room to swell and then reduce swelling without you know crushing itself on the inside of the skull. So craniotomies, drilling holes in the skull, those were medical practice practices that were being done on patients, patients that had real problems. Plus, there were veterans who came back from war with pieces of their skull missing, who lived. It would have been very easy for Bart Hughes to travel around greater Europe from Amsterdam, go to France, go to Germany, go to Italy, go, you know, travel around England, find the veterans with holes in their head and interview them. Do they think the holes in their head provided them a kind of expanded consciousness? It would have been a very easy study to do. It would have been simple. However, Bart Hughes, crazy fucking Bart Hughes, decided he was going to take matters into his own hands, prove everybody wrong, and drill a hole in his own head and call it a cure for psychosis. I can't imagine anything more fucked up and crazy. And this is one of those stories that you will only get in the psychedelic community. There is no other community. There is no other trade group. There is no other hobby group. There is no other interest group where you can look back through the history of science and experimentation and find people who thought that it was a good idea to drill a hole in their head. Not only that it was a good idea It was a great idea. It was a great idea that was going to be a revolution in consciousness. And, oh, by the way, it is a cure for psychosis. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry I'm laughing, but that is some crazy fucking shit, and you only find that in the psychedelic community. And now, what does the psychedelic community do? In 1964, 1965, when Bart Hughes is walking around talking about how drilling a hole in your head, how trepanation is the cure for psychosis, Did people in the psychedelic community go, oh, that's weird, that guy's fucking crazy. No. In fact, they did the exact opposite. People in the psychedelic community, when they got wind of Bart Hughes drilling a hole into his head to become permanently high, they sat around and looked at themselves and thought, that sounds like a good idea what what the fuck come on you have to be kidding me how many people did bart hughes convince to drill holes in their head how many people how many okay we're deep into it now I'm gonna jump ahead to 1970 and talk about a man by the name of Joe Mellon Joe Mellon was an acolyte of Bart Hughes and he is the author of bore a hole book about his attempts at self trepanation and I was trying to do some research on uh, Joe Mellon And this is why I love the internet, because on a uh, kind of a weird site called Noah's Neurosphere, I found an article called Hole in the Head, written by Joe Mellon, from Other Scenes magazine in November 1970, where he talks about his introduction to trepidation. And I'm going to read from that a little bit here, just to give you the idea of what's going on in Joe Mellon's mind. Quote, Early in 1965, I heard of someone who had drilled a hole in his head to get permanently high. I put it down as another crankish idea and didn't think much about it. Later that year, I went to Ibiza looking for mescaline or LSD. I knew a few people who had taken acid and said it was even greater than mescaline. In Ibiza, I met an American girl called Fran, in whose house stayed Bart Hughes, the Dutchman who had drilled the hole in his skull. Bart was away at the time, but due back soon with some acid. I asked Fran what was behind the operation, and she said it was done to increase the volume of blood in the brain. And I'm going to skip through the article here to the good parts. When Bart arrived with the LSD, he said, Take sugar with it, and extra vitamin C. The three of us took trips together. For Fran and me, it was our first trip. The trip lasted all night long. An ecstatic parabola with gravity bringing the brain blood down again as the sun was coming up quote now you can see here even on his first acid trip Joe Mellon was already convinced that the mechanism of getting high had to do with blood-brain volume he goes on quote Understanding the mechanism of brain-blood volume enables one to take LSD or other hallucinatory drugs without harm and gives one control over the expansion of one's own consciousness. Once you know the mechanism, you can increase the brain-blood volume in innumerable ways, and any number of laws cannot prevent you putting your own blood in your own brain when you wish." Close quote. Now, this article shows how confident Joe Mellon is in Bart Hughes' assertion of brain-blood volume. Not only does he understand Bart's brain-blood volume theory, he becomes a master of it in one trip. I'm going to continue here. Having fully understood the mechanism, I was excited at the prospect of releasing the news to a breathless world. I saw no reason to doubt that other people would be glad to hear it as I had been. Bart warned me that it had not been so easy for him in Amsterdam. It was three years since he had discovered the mechanism, but still the world was totally ignorant of the fact. He had conducted a publicity campaign, but the scandal journalists had fastened on to the sensational aspects of the operation and completely ignored the explanation. The mechanism was never mentioned." Okay, so according to Joe Mellon, Bart Hughes, after drilling a hole in his head, went on a publicity tour through Amsterdam trying to tell everybody what a great idea it was. And for some reason, the journalists were fixated on the fact that he had drilled a hole in his head. And they didn't even listen to why. They were just fixated on the fact that he had drilled a hole. Now, why? Why do you think they did that? Well, because it's fucking crazy. That's why. And I'm going to keep reading from this article because it's so great. Quote, What was it that was so important about the discovery of the mechanism of brain blood volume? Before understanding that, you need an experience and an explanation. You must increase the brain blood volume to experience the state of expanded consciousness. This can be done in many ways. For example, by yoga headstands, or breathing exercises, by smoking pot, or jumping out of a hot bath into a cold bath which puts you on a total adrenal constrictions and squeezes you high in a few seconds. Some people can put themselves on adrenaline at will with a magic formula. Now, I don't know what that means. Some people can put themselves on adrenaline at will with a magic formula, but okay, Joe Mellon, let's continue. Having experienced life at the highest level that is maximal brain metabolism. It is very likely that you will want to repeat the experience. A trip above the clouds to the mountaintop can give you a taste for heights, but to build a house and live up there, you need to know all about local conditions. The LSD movement got off the ground simultaneously in Europe and America. In the United States, the high priest was Timothy Leary. Bart Hughes's actions always had two prime objectives. To enlighten the adult and to empty the mental hospitals of all but those with organic diseases the effect of Leary's actions was to fill the mental hospitals with sugar-lack flip-outs. Okay, here Joe Mellon is scolding Leary for teaching kids how to do acid wrong. And he is lauding Bart Hughes' actions for wanting to empty the mental hospitals of psychotic people by drilling holes in everybody's head joe mellon somehow saw bart hughes's actions and approach to lsd as somehow more beneficial and more therapeutic than timothy leary's application preaching lsd to young people and telling them to free their minds according to joe mellon if tim leary had just told everybody about the brain blood volume thing and had all those kids in america drill holes in their heads there would be no flip-outs, and there would be nobody in the mental hospitals. All of those acid hippies in America would be fine if they just drilled a hole in their head and learned how, learned the mechanism of brain-blood volume. Okay, Joe Mellon goes on. The discovery of the mechanism of brain-blood volume has revealed the reason for the success of trepanation in the treatment of insanity. Now, as an aside, I'm going to say there's never been a reason for the success of trepanation in the treatment of insanity. It's just not a thing. I don't know where, where Joe Mellon gets this. It's probably all Bart Hughes propaganda. Quote, the operation has been performed since prehistoric times by restoring to the intracranial arteries and capillaries, the pulsation which dies when the skull seals at the end of growth. The benefits of youth are perpetuated. The ability to learn new skills and understand complicated explanations the energy and enthusiasm to pursue dreams to their realization some get these gifts by accident fractures of the skull mastoid operations the loss of sight in both eyes are only one all produce more blood in the brain just as society now has the task of casting off the yoke of tyranny by reducing government to a manageable machine to serve its purposes So the individual must free himself from the tyranny of his ego, not by losing it altogether so that there's no one home in the head to give orders to the limbs, but by reducing its importance to the level of an efficient civil servant. The talking ape needs an ego, like a car needs a driver. The adult's ego, like his government, becomes the instrument of repression. In the adult's brain, the ego feels threatened by anything which attracts attention, blood, away from its own province. The speech system by increasing the amount of blood in all parts of the brain you dispense with the need to squeeze blood out into the speech system by constricting the arteries leading to other parts of the brain there is enough there anyway without depriving the rest of the brain of its share this is the benefit of trepanation okay you can see joe mellon is bending over backwards with that european intellectualism To explain some bullshit about how drilling a hole in your head is like civil government. Yes, that's correct. Drilling a hole in your head is just like deposing a king and installing a friendly civil government. Okay, whatever. The final paragraph of this article. The performance of trepanation is rightly the duty of a medical profession. Bart could find no one to perform it for him. So he did it for himself. He was a medical student and had sufficient knowledge of operation techniques to do this. I was able to do it only after studying the subject very carefully. My advice to other people is, Find a doctor to Japan you! Close quotes. To which I'll say, Good fucking luck. Because no doctor worth their salt would ever trepan a healthy patient. It goes absolutely against the Hippocratic Oath and everything a medical doctor swears to when they become a doctor. There is no wonder Bart could find no one to perform his trepanation for him because it is a fucking crazy idea. And every doctor he went to would tell him the same thing. You're fucking insane. Stop taking the acid. Chill out. Don't drill a hole in your head. But no. Instead of not drilling a hole in his head, Bart Hughes drilled a hole in his head, went around Amsterdam, went around Europe, went to Ibiza, gave a whole bunch of people acid, became timothy leary of europe but instead of telling people to tune in turn on or drop out or free their minds or look within or whatever kind of innocuous garbage tim leary was spouting bart hughes said no you sillies just drill a hole in your head and that's what joe Mellon did and now here's where these little podcasts get a little tricky for me, and where I start to feel a little bad for dragging all of this stuff out. Because for those of you who know, who've been around the psychedelic field for a while, you know that Joe Mellon was a long-term partner of a woman named Amanda Fielding, and Amanda Fielding is legit English nobility. She's a countess. She is not your average hippie chick. She's upper crust, upper crust British society. Grew up in a very fabulous British manor called Beckley Park. Which, according to Wikipedia, is a Tudor hunting lodge with three towers and three moats, situated on the edge of a fen outside Oxford. Now, I don't know what a fen is. I'm guessing it's a it's a, it's a uh, okay. Google says it's a marsh or a frequently flooded lowland area. Okay, so <laughs> Amanda Fielding Amanda Fielding grew up and grew up as a nobility in rural England like a character out of Downton Abbey. And for a long time, she was in a relationship with Joey Mellon. And in that relationship, Joey Mellon convinced Amanda Fielding to, first of all, help him trepan himself. And then once that was done, he convinced Amanda Fielding to trepan herself, which she did On camera, she filmed drilling a hole in her own head in a short documentary called Heartbeat in the Brain, which you may be able to find online. Sometimes it's available, sometimes it's not. But it's a very troubling, very graphic, very grisly short film of Amanda Fielding drilling a hole through her head. And you see smoke or skull dust coming up from the drill as she drills into her head. You see blood gush down the front of her face. Now, I'm a little bit of a squeamish guy, and I've seen this film screened at at psychedelic events, and I always have to turn away. I always have to leave the room because it is just so fucking crazy to me that someone not only drilled a hole in their head, but they did it on camera. They documented it as if it was an important event that the entire world must see. The entire world must see this process and be exposed to the genius of Bart Hughes and his brain-blood volume theory. And we're going to shock the world by having this woman, Amanda Fielding, this air of English nobility, drill a hole in her head on camera and show the world that her life is better after it's done. So there's two people. There's two people who drilled a hole in their head because of what Bart Hughes had to say. Crazy fucking Bart Hughes. And this is weird for me because I know Amanda Fielding. I've met Amanda Fielding um, I met her at a couple psychedelic conferences. I actually sat next to Amanda Fielding at a dinner at the Mind States 2001 conference, I believe it was. I sat next to Amanda Fielding and her husband, after Joey Mellon, James Charteris. James Charteris is also old school British nobility. He is the 13th Earl of Wymus and the 9th Earl of March. And when he married Amanda Fielding, Amanda Fielding became Lady Needpath. Amanda Fielding, Countess of Weems and March. Now, interesting thing about James Charteris, he too has a hole drilled in his skull, and he was talked into it by... Amanda Fielding. And now I know James Trotter has a hole in his head because I sat next to him at dinner and I talked to him extensively about how it happened. What it was like to have a hole in his head. I even asked him if I could touch the hole in his head because I am just that kind of guy. That if I'm sitting next to somebody who's actually Trepan themselves, I'm going to say, let me feel the hole in your head, please. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just that kind of guy. I could not let the opportunity go by. So, James Charteris, lovely man, a great man, a friendly guy, sweet guy. We had a very great conversation. Leaned forward and let me rub the top of his scalp and find the little hole on the top of his head that wasn't actually that little. It was about the size of a nickel. And here's the weird thing: it wasn't a clean hole. It was ragged. It was sort of cracked. You could feel edges, it wasn't a neat hole, it was like a hole snapped through, and then pieces of skull were sort of removed. And of course the skin grows over the hole, so you have to feel it through the skin. And this was a really freaky encounter for me. I did not feel the hole in Amanda Fielding's head, though. Amanda was busy talking to other people at the time, (laughs) so, um, yeah. But I did talk to her husband, James, who, of course, also was trepant. So that's three people. Now, listen to this. In 1994, after Joey Mellon and Amanda Fielding had, had broken up after many years of being together, Joey Mellon met another woman, Jenny Gawthorne Hardy, in 1994. And guess what? Joey Mellon convinced her to get trepanned in 1995. That's four people. Now, unlike other of these episodes, this episode does not have a horrible dark ending. In fact, all of the people who trepanned themselves survived and lived pretty much normal lives. In fact, Amanda Fielding is now one of the most respected figures in psychedelic research. She founded the Beckley Foundation, named after her, her home estate, her childhood estate. And she's a speaker and a researcher. Uh, she does outreach and advocacy. For drug policy, she's uh, a huge leader in the drug policy reform movement in the UK, along with Professor David Nutt, both of whom I've talked to through email on various occasions. Amanda Fielding is an extremely lovely, wonderful person who is very dedicated to the idea of psychedelic research. However, every time I meet her or see her speaking, or, or read something that she's written, I can't help but think she drilled a fucking hole in her head. She's got to be crazy. Because, and this is the weird thing, I mean, I've talked t- to both of them, I've talked to James Charteris, I've talked to Amanda Fielding, and I asked, did you get permanently high? After you trepanned yourself, did the, the you know, the, the trepanation actually work as advertised? Did you enter, you know, a permanent state of being high? And James Charteris said, well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I felt a change. It was, you know, it was very dramatic at first, but then, you know, eventually I got used to it. And neither one of them seemed particularly high all the time or in an expanded state of consciousness, they both just seem like normal people with holes in their head. And I have a couple closing points here to a couple pieces of analysis that I think are extremely important. The first is, if you manage to find a way to make yourself high forever, What that means is that being high eventually, after a short period of time, wears off, and it just becomes your normal state. I hope you're following me here, because this is a very important point. The reason that getting high feels amazing is because it's different than our normal state. And the fact that we spend so much time in our normal state allows us to have the contrast of experience between being in a normal state and being high. And it is the contrast of experience between normalcy and being high that is, that is the amazing phenomenological shift. It is the contrast between the two. So what I am saying is that If you are then placed into a state of being high all the time, there is no phenomenological contrast. Being high becomes your state of normalcy. And the brain has a way of adapting to anything. So even if drilling a hole in your head does make you high, it is not a permanent change. Because after the shock after the mania, after whatever, the residual adrenaline wears off, after a few days or a week, you're back to being normal. And if you are permanently high, how do you get high? You can't, because you are permanently high already. Now, this logic seems obvious to me. It seems obvious obvious to me when I read all of this stuff about Bart Hughes and people trepanning themselves to get permanently high, in quotes. Because there is no such thing as being permanently high. You cannot do it. Being high only happens in contrast to being normal most of the time. And, you know, as junkies will tell you, as anybody who's addicted to drugs who t- will tell you, if you're a heroin addict, if you're an opium addict, if you're, if you're a pot addict, if, you're, if you take LSD every day, you will find that over time, the effects of the drug just wear off. You don't get high anymore. In fact, you just feel worse when you don't have the drug. You get opposite of high. So being high all the time doesn't work. It's just a wrong assumption. It's a bad idea. And I don't understand why all of these people thought it was a good idea thought that it even made sense to be high all the time it just it just is is completely illogical to me it baffles me i mean it, it would be like i would be sitting in a room with these people saying don't you don't you see all of the logical fallacies that you're you're spouting this is this is absolutely ludicrous the ideas that you're talking about don't even make sense they're not scientific they're just dumb and i think back to an interview i did with uh, john lilly when uh in the opening paragraph of the scientist john lilly recounts um wanting to drill a hole in his head so that he could plant electrodes into the you know the deep center of his brain so that he can stimulate his brains for experimental research to see what different areas of the brain did and so on and i asked him i said are you ever uh are you upset that you never did that research, that you never drilled a hole in your head and uh, did electrode experimentation on your own brain? And he said, no, in his grumpy way. He said, no. And I said, why not? Why, why didn't you ever not like, follow that line of thought? He said, because it's stupid. <laughs> that was, it's what he said, he said, because it's stupid. And I thought, yeah, it is, it is stupid. okay and now here's the last thing here's the here's the fucking kicker all right amanda fielding drills a hole in her head in 1970 and spends the next 40 years lobbying for increased psychedelic research and for the benefits of psychedelics and she's successful She's successful at what she does because she becomes a good advocate for psychedelic science. She becomes a figurehead in the psychedelic movement and people respect her even though she has a hole in her head. And because of that respect and because of her education and her her noble bearing, she was able to eventually fund some psychedelic studies to test the theory of brain blood volume as proposed by Bart Hughes back in 1964, she was able to do some real research on the effects of psychedelics on the flow of blood through the brain. And what did she find? She found psychedelics decrease the flow of blood through the brain. They do the exact opposite of what Bart Hughes predicted. According to Amanda Fielding's own research, the studies performed by the Beckley Foundation under the watchful eye of Amanda Fielding, the woman who punctured a hole in her brain to test the theory of brain blood volume, her own research shows that this is 100% wrong. In fact, when a person is in the height of hallucination, in the peak of the trip, brain blood flow is squeezed down to a minimum, and the brain goes into an internal configuration that looks more like sleep and dreaming than it does like being super awake. It does the exact fucking opposite. And you can read Amanda Fielding's Mea Culpa in an article in the New Statesman published on June 22nd, 2016. And it's titled, I Am Happy to Be Proved Wrong Amanda Fielding on Drugs, Trepanning, and the Benefits of LSD. You can just Google that phrase, Amanda Fielding. I am happy to be proved wrong. Really? After all these years, after drilling a hole in your head, maybe convincing other people to drill holes in their head on the basis of some fucking crackpot theory, literally crackpot, because crackpot means a hole in your head. And since that time, Amanda Fielding has been derided in UK press as the crackpot countess. She is the crackpot countess, always advocating for drug policy reform, the crackpot countess. And this is the mark that she has received for the crime of trepanning herself. She is the crackpot countess. And now she has spent 40 years trying to vindicate herself through legitimate scientific research to prove the fact that LSD and hallucinogens increase brain-blood volume, and that is the key to expanded consciousness. And in her own study, the results came back the exact opposite. And what does Amanda Fielding say? I am happy to be proved wrong. Well, that is very diplomatic of you, Amanda Fielding. But if I were in your position, I would not be happy to be proved wrong. In fact, I would be fucking devastated not because I had just bored a hole in my own skull, but I convinced my husband, the Earl of Weems, James Charteris, to drill a hole in his skull as well, based on this stupid fucking crackpot theory from Bart Hughes. And now, on the eve of what should be our final vindication, we find out, oops, we were wrong. And she says, "'I'm happy to be proved wrong,' I just want to know how it works. Well, fucking great. Maybe it would have been better to find out how it works first before you drilled a fucking hole in your head and before you convinced other people to drill a fucking hole in your head. And I'm sorry, I would never say this to Amanda Fielding's face. She's a wonderful person and, uh, you know, I think the world needs people like Amanda Fielding. The world needs colorful characters like the Crackpot Countess. But this story is just the fucking craziest thing. It's the fucking craziest thing and it makes me angry. It makes me angry that some fucking dipshit like Bart Hughes could wander around Europe handing out acid, convincing people to drill holes in their skull and that this was considered the vanguard. This was the vanguard of scientific exploration in 1970 and all the people in the little cabal of trepanners thought that they were so fucking smart that they had figured out the mechanism of expanded consciousness and they were the only ones who knew it and they were smug in their narcissistic little superior world and laughing at the rest of the world for being so stupid and now guess what fuck you guys you deserve the hole in your head Maybe you don't deserve me berating you for it years after the fact. This is just my shit that I'm getting off of my chest. But maybe living with a hole in your head is not the worst thing that could have happened. Because at least Amanda Fielding was able to fall in love, live her life, have some children, be an advocate for drug policy reform, be an advocate for psychedelic science, and so on. And Amanda Fielding continues to speak to this day on psychedelic research and drug policy reform. In fact, in April, she spoke at the Psychedelic Science, the MAPS Psychedelic Science 2017 conference. I think she was a, uh, one of the highlighted speakers, one of the featured speakers. And uh, she posted on Facebook, right after she spoke. She said, quote, from her Facebook page on April 27th, I started the Beckley Imperial Research Program with my great friend David Nutt in order to explore consciousness through the use of psychedelic compounds. The fact that 3,000 people from around the world joined us at the Psychedelic Science 2017 conference last week shows us just how far we have come as as a collective and... Highlights the power of scientific research to integrate psychedelics into mainstream society. Okay, and there it is. There it is. Her Facebook post, April 27th. The entire thrust, the core of her research, the fiber of her being, everything that she did to start the Beckley research program with David Nutt to pursue psychedelic science, to speak as an advocate, to go to these conferences. This is all to highlight the power of psychi- to highlight the power of scientific research to integrate psychedelics into mainstream society, at which point I have to say, why Why do we need to integrate psychedelics into mainstream society? Why is that even a goal? Why can't psychedelics just be a subculture of people who are fans of a certain type of drug? Why does it need to be integrated into mainstream society? What is the psychedelic community's fascination with integrating psychedelics into mainstream society Particularly when psychedelic culture is so jam-packed and overrun with crazy fucking weirdos. Why would we want to inflict that on mainstream society? Why does mainstream society need any of that? And the answer is, they don't. And the whole desire to integrate psychedelics into mainstream society, in my mind, is misguided. And it comes from this... Movement towards legitimacy. And the only way to make the psychedelic experience legitimate is to integrate it into mainstream society, to which I say, fucking bullshit. There is no need to integrate anything into mainstream society. This is just your narcissistic need to prove that what you did to your head is important. And as long as mainstream society looks at Amanda Fielding and says, crackpot countess she is not happy to be proved wrong in fact she will spend the rest of her life trying to vindicate herself to integrate psychedelics into mainstream society and for that i can say good luck amanda fielding because from my point of view that ship is sailing.
1: Lost the sun She's come undone She didn't know what she was headed for And when I found what she was headed for